take the risks because tomorrow is not promised. And the only way that you're going to change your life is by changing something that is outside of your comfort zone. Today on Bridging the Gap, I had the opportunity to speak with Kelly Long. Kelly is a financial coach, financial wellness expert, consultant, freelance content creator, and the founder of Financial Bliss. She is so well-rounded in this industry. Kelly opened up an interesting conversation about the energy of money and how money represents an exchange of energy. We also talked about perfectionism, which is near and dear to my heart of something I'm trying to overcome. And we also talked about the overcoming of the, quote, need that we all have, that we need to do something. Seeing challenges as opportunity to grow was another part of our conversation, along with how to navigate through financial stress, which is something we all deal with. Kelly also dives into her meaning behind the pathway to bliss in your financial journey. This was a conversation that just opened my eyes. It was a great conversation. I'm so appreciative of Kelly joining us. So let's just get into the episode with Kelly Long. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Kelly Long from Tucson, Arizona. Welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for joining us. How's everything going with you? Hey, Matt. Really excited to be here. Life is grand out here in the desert. It's the dry summer and loving it, loving life. Gosh, I, I we were talking about before we started recording how you know I, I went to school at Arizona State. I I love the desert. I don't know if I could live there. I lived there for four years, but I don't know if I could live there full time. I do love it. I was out there recently, and I hadn't been in about five years, and I just forgot how dry it was. My skin and my I mean, I drank so much water. My whole my body was so dried out. So y'all are going into the. Uh, the the hot days right now the the hot days of of Arizona weather yes and we are new Arizona residents my husband and I moved here in September from Chicago so born and raised and lived in the Midwest my whole life and we're going to find out whether or not I want to live in the desert but so far <laughs> we're we're loving it it is general genuinely like moving to a different country though with the it is. wildlife what, and I, the it's nuts it's unreal I mean but now tell me this. What made y'all choose Arizona from Chicago? What made y'all move to Arizona? That's a great question. For like all of our marriage, we wanted to leave the Midwest at some point and we could never settle on a spot and we explored a few different places. But ultimately it was a little bit of be careful what you joke about. My parents are snowbirds, which a very common thing around Southern Arizona and they winter here and we're RV folks. They had kind of the classic American retirement and their eighth year there, they were contemplating selling their RV, selling their home in Northern Michigan and buying a home here in Arizona. And we realized that we had visited them almost every year, but never thought of ourselves as like aficionados per se. But we had an opportunity to invest in a property out here that we at the time, that would be a second home and a place for my parents to stay so that they wouldn't have to sell their home in Northern Michigan because I still want to be able to visit. And then we kind of joked like, oh, we could like just go live there and sell our place in Chicago, get out while the market's hot and you know, figure it out from there. And that's literally what we did. And by the time we got here, we knew we wanted to stay. Uh, the cost of living is much lower. We bought a four-bedroom home with two offices outside of the bedrooms for the same price we sold our two-bedroom condo in the city. Wow. So it's been wow. a, a leveling up of our lifestyle, which is really a foundation of my financial coaching business is my story of how I went from somebody who never thought I'd ever even like own a home to 
randomly selling everything and moving across the country to a city we really didn't know anyone and buying a massive house with a pool and a desert view. It's that is incredible. What a story. And I want to dig into that because, I mean, we're not here to talk about necessarily real estate, but a little bit. And I could talk about Arizona for a while. There's a, like I said, there's a special place in my heart for for Arizona. Is you know you are a one-on-one fi- you have a one-on-one financial coaching program. Find your financial bliss, and yeah. I love I love that. I'm just going to read it because it says finding fi- find your financial bliss helps smart, responsible women and couples move past analysis paralysis and confusion about where to start with moving beyond just saving money and guides them, responsible women and couples, to clarity and confidence with an actionable plan. I absolutely love that. What, so just, I don't know even where to start. Let's just start with, how'd you get here? How'd you get to find your financial bliss? Let's, let's hear the story. I will try to be succinct. Economy of words is a goal. Brevity is not a skill that I possess, but I work on it. But essentially, I've had 20 years in the business, started out as a CPA actually, but quickly found myself in a wealth management department and eventually was an FA for a while with a large brokerage, hated having to sell before I could work with clients. And I spent a significant amount of time working for a corporate financial wellness provider on workplace financial wellness, where I really had just an amazing experience. I got to work with over 2,500 different individuals on their money. And so it really gave me a very broad perspective on why people make the money decisions that they do or don't. And there's a gap. So financial coaching and the financial wellness world is a growing industry, a very necessary industry that helps and teaches and guides and and holds people accountable to the basics of learning how to budget, paying off debt, building up an emergency savings account, kind of the the, the three pillars of financial security. And then we've got the wealth management business where people who have accumulated some wealth have amazing options with you know, wealth planners, financial advisors, whatever they want to call themselves to help them not just invest their money, but to plan for all of life's eventualities. But there's this gap of, okay, I've figured out the basics, but I don't either, I don't have enough to qualify for the the best people in the business, or I just don't even know what I'm looking for because my clients mostly grew up in households where money was very tight and they learned frugality and they learned to, you know, they learned the dangers of debt and have done a great job of doing that. But then they find themselves like hoarding cash. And I'm a big believer in the energy of money. And so, and I saw this myself where this energy of like trying to hang on to money actually almost causes financial challenges because money needs to flow. And it's just the volumes that flow larger for people who are living more abundant or or prosperous lifestyles. And so I toe the line with the woo-woo stuff because I'm not a huge fan of just like, oh, vision, it will happen. I do believe that we can affect our outcomes with our attitude, but I don't think that if I just sit here and dream about a trip to Hawaii, that magically I'm going to find myself in Maui. You know, there's a hundred percent, right? And you know, I always think, but to that point, there's a lot of there's a lot of great stuff in that that I, I want to touch on. But to that one point, right, is I always think about 
There's a book that I read, and we're going to talk about some books. And I'm just looking up at my bookshelf right now. It's called It Takes What It Takes by Trevor Moad. And Trevor was a sports psychologist for a quarterback by the name of Russell Wilson. But he also helped a lot of college football teams. I'm a big into college football here in the South. And but he was he's a really good psychologist. And unfortunately, he passed away at a young age from cancer. And he wrote another book, Getting to Neutral while he was going through cancer battle. And the whole premise of the book was not to think positive and not to think negative, but to think neutral, right? Be a neutral thinker. What's the next step? Basically, what his whole mentality was saying is that his mentality was saying, well, you know, you're, what happened? What just happened doesn't impact what you do next. You always have a new decision to make on the next action you take. And when you set all these large goals, like that's why he talks about Nick Saban in the book, talking about you know he doesn't talk to his team about winning the national championship. He says, "Be the best person on the this play." And the reason is, is because you just want to go and do the best you can on each play, and then forget about it and move on to the next one. And the reason I bring that book up is it's a not it's an amazing book. It's actually a life changing book for me personally, not not everybody, but me personally. He talks about the idea of don't say stupid blank out loud. Like that's his line. Don't say stupid sh whatever you want to put on there out loud. Stupid stuff. And the reason is is because the more likely, and he did all these studies, and they were like like deep scientific studies, but the more likely, the more often you say it out loud, the more likely it is to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, of course, you're just thinking that you're going to go to Hawaii is not going to work, but don't say I'm never going to go to Hawaii out loud because you know what? Your odds of it going against you is, is pretty high. And when you think negative and when you think negative thoughts, you're, you're likely going to have those negative thoughts come true. So it's more like you can't say that positive thinking is always going to avoid negativity, but if you think positively, if you think negative, you're always probably going to have negative outcomes. And so that's the whole mentality of it, which I love that. Yes, you know, you can't, it's just not going to happen. But if you think more positively, you're going to take more actions to go that way. So I'm a huge fan of what you're alluding to on that side, but it's a book. We're talking about books, Kelly. This is a good one for you to read, to add to your list. All right. It's a great one. Yes. But you also believe you, you, if you go looking for something, you're going to find it. It's, it's all mentality, right? We are driven by our how we view things is how we act and our actions to t- dictate where we go. Mm-hmm. And if you view things negatively, you're going to take, neg- you're going to take actions that are neg- have a negative intent, which means you're going to go in a negative direction. And it's so much easier. It, it, I also, I'm a big fan of Ryan Holiday, and he talks about all this philosophical stuff as well. And, but he says, you know, all this stuff is simple, but doesn't mean it's easy. It's simple right. to understand. Yeah, it's simple to think positive, right? But it's it's hard. It's hard stuff. The the energy of money. <laughs> I love that. The energy of money. And what came to mind when you said that, and I want you to dig into that a little bit more, is yeah. I always think that when you focus so much on a goal, it can be it, the positive can turn into a vice and a negative mm-hmm. because like you focus so much on it that now like your whole life is dependent around that. So you start becoming just a, not the person you want to be. And that's how I took it away. Is that kind of where you're going with the energy of money or, or, or can you dig into that a little bit more, even if that's not where you were going? Sure. Well, it's all interlaced. And because in my, in my program, I actually require my participants to go through an examination of their subconscious money stories and beliefs so that they can start to see ways, start to question things that they hold to be true as to whether or not they're truly true. You know, all rich people are greedy or, you know, poor people are uneducated. You know, we all might cognitively know some of these things aren't true, but 
our behaviors don't necessarily always reflect that depending on like our subconscious beliefs. And then going from there, how you treat your money does reflect in how it happens in your life. So my, you know, I've, I literally have a lesson called the energy of money. And I, I talk about little things that I do that might appear to be penny pinching or excessive fruit at frugality or, you know, obsessive compulsive or whatever you want to call it. And perhaps there's an element of those things in it, but like, I never don't claim I, I should double negative. I always claim a warranty. <laughs> I always take the steps to get that money back and make sure I spend it. And I have, you know, tips and tricks to make it super simple. You know, these days, if you claim a warranty on something, they're going to send you a digital visa card, which is almost impossible to spend. So I immediately just use it to buy an Amazon gift card, load it on my account, and I've just turned it into Amazon money. But even just something as simple as picking up money off of the ground, or if you are booked in an exercise class where you'll be financially penalized by not showing up, if you're one of those people that just doesn't mind not showing up and, and paying that money, you're basically saying, I don't care about that money. And mm. that's where the the subconscious money work has to happen first, because that can come across as like, oh my gosh, she's super focused on money. She's so shallow. And it's not at all about that because money just represents, and this is my key takeaway. <laughs> so I'll have to think of another one. Money just represents an exchange of energy. And so when I earn money, I'm giving of my energy. And then I use that money to purchase or, you know, to, to exchange for someone else's energy, whether it's the, you know, the woman who cleans house, clean my home, you know, I'm, I'm helping her, thanking her for her energy, the food I eat, the farmer's energy, the trucker's energy that got to the grocery store, the checkout clerk's energy, all those people, all that energy, it's just an exchange. Without that exchange of energy, it's paper, right? So thinking of it that way really helps to release some of that emotion that we often have tied to seeing the dollars go in and out of our accounts. And yeah. once you kind of internalize that, then I take us into some goal setting where I go beyond goals, which we can, you know, I don't, I don't want to pivot too soon, but that's I where, I, go that's down where that. I am with the energy of money. This, the energy of money is it's a, a, what a concept, right? I, I love that visual. As you were talking, I was drawing this out because I, I could see it, right? When you go and earn money, and, and this may be simplifying it or taking it a little bit of a different direction than how you intended, but you know, when you earn money, you're 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 burning energy, right? You're mm -hmm. burning energy. It's you're, you're going and like you're having to work for that to get that money. You're having to do something, whether it's mental energy by investing and, and having the mental anguish of ups and downs, or it's your job that you're working and you're burning energy. But then when you get that money and then you go spend it on something, and I think about like experience, I'm all about experiential and all that type of stuff. You're actually, in my mind, to your point, you're saying, well, you're giving that next person energy, right? The travel agent, the hotel, whatever it may be energy. But I see it as also, just if you think about it yourself, you're using that to build energy back. And so mm -hmm. if your equation is off a little bit, right, from what you're saying is like if you're, you're spending so much energy to earn it, but you're not building up and replenishing the energy, you're going to be worn out. So you've got to find this happy medium to where you're using this money to re-energize yourself to help. And, and then it all, with, if you do that, you're helping a lot of people. And it kind of is this like merry-go-round of like 
this is what life is about at that point. I, I think, you know, money likes to move. And so it gets stagnant sitting in your savings account. If you just, it just sits there with no purpose. Obviously you want to have a certain amount of energy stored up for the future. And I think it balances out. So for most of us working class, you know, working Americans, I don't want to say working class, but like people who go to work and earn our money, there was a period of time early in our life where we put in a lot of energy and we actually paid to put that energy in also known as college. <laughs> and, and, and early in your careers, especially in service-based careers, professional service-based careers, desk jobs, you weren't paid a whole lot, but you worked a lot. And so that to me helps justify or better balance out that you know, as we move for, further in our careers, it appears that our jobs get easier and yet our incomes get higher. And part of that's a balancing out of the energy you've invested early in your life. And, and the biggest thing for me with that philosophy is I'm really careful to set boundaries around my energy but to be generous with my energy because mm. I know it's going to pay back. I'm, you know, if I have the ability to help someone, whether that's giving them money, giving them advice, listening, whatever it is, I will do that no matter how scary it might feel to give up the energy, usually money. And I've been around people who don't believe that, you know, I don't give away free advice. I, you know, if you want it, my advice, you can pay me. And I understand that there are certain people who have been taken advantage of, and you have to kind of swing that way to figure out where your balance is. But when, but people who live just by that, like, if you want my advice, you can't just pick my brain, are miserable people. They're constantly looking for someone to take advantage of them, and they're hoarding their energy. And I, I think that exacerbates, you know, that shows up in your health and your relationships and. I just prefer to to keep it flowing. So that doesn't mean I like to just spend all my money, you know, um, but I do find it easier once I kind of shifted my mindset about that, I found it easier to let money flow out of my life because I trusted that it would flow back in when I needed it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you have to have your energy reserves, right? You always need right. to have the reserves and that's always, that's not, you know, we need to have some batteries that are on the sideline to keep us charged. <laughs> if one of our batteries goes on need, right? We always need to have extra batteries. So you got to have that. It's not saying spend it all. And like, to your point, you mentioned also, it's like, I said experiences are, are what maybe build up energy with spending money, but some people may be philanthropic and charity mm -hmm. and, and giving and great go and do that. Like build, charge your batteries the way that you need to with what you earned. And if you're in working years, it, you're, you're continuing to earn it. If you're in retirement years, maybe you're using your income from the portfolio, whatever it may be. I, I just love that psychology around how to handle money. I, I'm curious because this is a topic that I think you and I can both dig into. And I got to be careful because we could talk about this for hours. I, I've never had too long of a podcast, but this could go long as we dig into this, is the psychology, the money psychology and financial planning, right? You know, I, I was just recently listening to Morgan Housel on the Tim Ferriss show, and you know, he wrote The Psychology of Money, which Love is uh, just a great, great book. I mean, he's just a great writer. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think it's so interesting, you know, he, you know, like they're talking on on about how paying off your mortgage and how that's good for your psychology and it's not good from a financial standpoint. But sometimes you just have, and I tell clients this all the time, I don't think this is a good financial decision, but it's going to be a good mental psychological decision for you. So you should do it. 
And there's sometimes you have to go that route and sometimes you have to go the financial route. Your perspective as you help your clients on one-to-one coaching, how what have you seen when it comes to psychology of money that impacts individuals with their financial planning? I I mean, specific to the, the market that I've targeted, it's a perfectionism. I don't want to mess this up. So that, that's where the analysis paralysis comes in. Like I, I have to get this right the first time and helping them feel more comfortable taking a chance. And so there's an educational component to that, just understanding how things work. But then there's also the a psychology of like, why is it so scary for you to take $100 and put it into the market, but you have no problem spending $100 on throwaway retail clothes that you know you're probably going to be taking to goodwill within a year. Like that, you get nothing back for that hundred bucks after a couple times you wear the clothes. But like, and so you might potentially lose your hundred dollars. Although you probably not, if you put it in an index fund, you're not going to lose your hundred dollars. You just might not get it back right away, but most likely it's going to turn into like a thousand dollars over time. And so helping shift that psychology into like investing, isn't this you invested in the clothes from Old Navy, you also can invest in stocks on the market and helping like break that barrier of it being the scary thing. So that's one piece of it. And then it's a lot of feeling like I should be doing something. So there's a lot of permission. And then kind of what you were alluding to, I always say my job as a coach is to tell you the technically correct answer to your question. Should I pay off my mortgage or should I invest? Well, there's a technically correct answer to that. A lot of the times we won't know the correct answer until it's too late to make a difference. But then my job is to like also offer you the alternatives and help you weigh the pros and cons so you can make the decision that fits your life. And so if you decide you would do want to pay off your mortgage, even though you've got a three and a half percent rate, and you know that you could potentially earn 10% over time with that money, but in the meantime, like you're not going to sleep as well, then I mean, sleep is actually a bigger investment. and giving that permission is important, but then, you know, especially in the coaching business where I don't have, you know, I don't have asset management, so I don't have ongoing long-term relationships unless people want to keep paying my fees for session base is helping them come up with reminders to bring them back to that mindset at the moment we talked about it. So five years from now, they're, they're not like, okay, why did I do that? Why did I do that crazy thing? So that is, that's one of the things that kind of bringing it back to when you talked about people being super focused on goals, one of the ways that I mitigate that is we stop the focus on a certain outcome being the thing. And instead, Mm -hmm. we talk about what is behind it and getting down to what I call your, oh my gosh, (laughs) your pathway to bliss. I have all these like cute little terms for things. So what, 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 what some people will call your life intention or what, what lights your torch in George Kinder's parlance. You know, what is that thing? Is it joy? Is it, for me, it's flexibility and autonomy and passion. And like, if something gives me, like, takes me away from flexibility, that's not something I want to do. And so like, if I, you know, my husband would love to drive a Maserati someday, that may or may not ever be a financial reality for us. But what is it that you would love about driving a Maserati? Is it the the prestige that it would reflect? Because there's other ways to accomplish that. Is it driving fast? Well, we could rent a car for the weekend. Is it, you know, you just like the smell of new leather? Like, what is it that you like? And how can we find other ways to bring that into your life in a way that fits all of your priorities? And I think that helps people to kind of take the 
the weight off of feeling like I'm never going to be able to do all the things I want to do and still be able to live a life of joy and, and presence and contentment. Cause really that's all, we all want the same things. We all want acceptance, belonging, and you know, the freedom to feel like we have the freedom to pursue our best life as we define what our best life is. And as long as I feel like I have the freedom to pursue that, that is what we all desire. Yeah. You know, as you're naming off the things that you wanted, flexibility, autonomy, right? And I'm like <laughs> nodding my head. Yeah. All right. That's what I want. Like if you look at my personal mission statement, it's a, I'm, I do things because I want freedom, right? I want yes. freedom of thought. I want freedom of my conversation. I want everybody to be able to have their own point of view. I want people to have a point of view and be able to express it freely. But then I also want to be free to do what I want. Right. And that's why I do what I do. And, right. uh, and I, and I want to help others have that sense of freedom if that's what they desire. But you know, you mentioned this, the, uh, there's two things I want to touch on is, is the pathway to bliss and the reminders. And I want to dig into that for a second, but I want to go back to the perfectionism and yes. perfectionism is something that challenges everybody. I, I'm just curious how you've seen, what you've seen work for people and what you've seen not work for people to overcome such a common trait that I think is instilled in us from schooling, yes. which is unfortunate because it's like one of the, the, the unknown negatives of schooling. It's like everybody's striving for a hundred, but you know what? In life, there is no hundred. There's no zero or a hundred. It's in the middle. And it's so tough to believe that. And, you know, you think about Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets, and she talks about like, hey, it's like a 60% odds that it will work, but then maybe new information will make it 40%, right? How do you help people with perfectionism? I would love that. <laughs> oh, gosh. You have the, the, the golden ticket. <laughs> I am a recovering perfectionist. And so that's part of the reason I target that as a barrier. It's a combination of understanding why, what need is your perfectionist behavior fulfilling? Is it a need for acceptance? Is it, an, is it regret avoidance? Is it just because you've been told that you have to get everything right. And I think that's a big part of it. Our, you, the schooling is, is absolutely part of it. And, you know, spoiler alert, the book that I think changed my, my, my life the most in the context of this conversation is a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And this we talk about. So she talks about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. And about 80% of us are raised with the fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset, the problem is with it that we identify, we believe that our skill sets are the way they are. So you're born the way you are. And there's a lot of other ancillary books that immediately come to mind. Malcolm Gladwell's writings come to mind right away. And then their growth mindset is, oh, I view challenges as chances to grow. Mm -hmm. We learn in our schooling not to take chances if you get it right. And so and our identity becomes like, if you're the smart kid, then you doubt you never want to be wrong. And being wrong actually could tell you psychologically that you're bad, that you're not good enough, that you're not who you think you are. And all the science says, actually, you know, you can become more intelligent. You can become more skilled at sports. It's not, you're not born. Some people are born with like a higher baseline, but you can increase that, that baseline and understanding that helps people to recognize where they might be living in that fixed mindset. And so I think perfectionism is born out of that idea that there's like only one right way to do things. And if I don't get it right, then that means I'm not a good person. 
And mm. it puts us in this defensive mode of always trying to prove ourselves. And, and, and Dr. Dweck talks in her book about how, what, where the first way she picked up on this was children tackling math problems. And some of them came in and just were paralyzed because they didn't know how to do it. And they cried and they were upset. And then there were kids that came in and were like, oh, I can't wait to figure this out. And the people who see a challenge as like an opportunity to grow are, are the, you know, that, that is where life happens. And mm -hmm. so I, you know, I point that out. And then we talk about that whole idea of like stretching outside of our comfort zone. And we talk about this a lot in, in business and in the world, but it's not just like stepping out your comfort zone. It's like stretching a little bit and then getting comfortable again and stretching a little bit and getting comfortable. And so I use two examples. One is kind of one we can hopefully all relate to, which is the first time you got a big raise. And at first you thought it was going to be life changing, but then like six months later, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm the same way. And I still have the same money challenges or situation. Like it didn't really change anything because we stretched our income, but then we got comfortable. But a better example I use is of my cat <laughs> who long story short, when she was a young cat would hide in the closet. And eventually my parents took her on a road trip for their snowbird one year. So four, four days in the car and back and lived in an RV for four months. And so she learned that that was safe. And so then the next you know, summer when I came to visit my parents, she came out of the basement occasionally. And then eventually my parents said, we're not doing a cat in the car anymore. So she came to live with us for the winter. And at our house, the doorbell would ring, she'd go hide. By the time Tia was in her final years, rest in peace, she was the first person at the door or being at the door when the doorbell rang. And it was just because like she it tested her comfort zone got comfortable. Another word for this is resilience. Mm. You know, the, the idea of, I, I think it's a, it's a mentality in my mind when I listen to this is like, you got to be just a lifelong learner, right? You're yeah. always learning. And if you're not learning, like in this comes across as rude, but what are you doing, right? You're just stagnating and, and nobody likes stagnation. Even if you're just retired, like I always tell all my retiree clients, I say, you got to keep your mind sharp, like do something, do Sudoku, do crossword puzzles, do Wordle. If you want to do Wordle, I don't care. Like do something, go and just talk with people because if you don't, and I see it so vividly, it's like the ones yeah. that do, like they say sharp and good for a long, long time. The ones that don't, that just think that I'm just going to sit at home and veg out, they just go, Watch like TV. their mind goes so quickly. Yes. And, you know, you just got to have this, you know, this constant state of learning and no matter where you are in your life. And, and that's how I, I think about it from that standpoint. You know, I want to, I want to transition for a second because I want to be respectful of your time. And I want to talk about, especially kind of in the world we're in today, right? We're post-pandemic. We're going through a lot of uncertainty global, you know, on a, a global level as well right now. And, and, you know, financial markets are anything but stable right now. You know, we're talking here, you know, in, in the, you know, spring, summertime and financial stress is real. And so I, I, I think about, you know, I, I'm just thinking about investment financial stress, but just like the idea of, do I have enough money to pay my bills and pay my debt off is a whole nother level of financial stress that people yeah. realize in 08 and 09. How do you help navigate people with this? Because I think it happens more than 
unfortunately, a lot of people realize that people are going through this because some people are really good at hiding it. Uh, some people just continue to dig themselves into a deeper hole to hide it and uh, <laughs> get too much leverage. How do you help people overcome financial stress? What are some tips, tricks, and, and ways that you help to prevent financial stress with with employees, with clients, et cetera? Well, Matt, it, it starts with what the cause of the financial stress is because they're the reality is there are people who legitimately are financial stressed because of their circumstances and they're they're completely validated. And there's only so much that as a coach, I can talk about, you know, p- pinching pennies and avoiding debt. But there are some realities where it's just like, there's not enough coming in to pay the bills. And, and so the best guidance there is you've got to not act like a victim. And it's okay to be in survival mode for a little while. And and try to do as little long-term damage as you're get, navigating this period, whether it's like, you know, if your stress is just caused by large medical bills or or even just, you know, when people have young children and life is so busy and they're insane, it's like, this is temporary in the grand scheme of things. Yes, it's not going to end in two weeks, but it, you know, five years from now, you're going to look back and all oh, the days are short, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. Like that, that euphemism has a... <laughs> That's true. So for the truly stressed, because there isn't just enough money coming in, then that's, there's not as much positive thinking involved as like, let's get down to the nitty gritty and let me help you find some resources that can like help you survive. And then also, you know, payday loans are just kind of a don't go there. But for my clients who are afraid of ever being like that, but probably have very little chance of ever going that way. It's more about reminding them of the logical side of things. You know, let's run the numbers. I'm going to show you that like you're fine. Even if you lost your job and didn't have a penny coming in for six months, you would be able to pay your bills. So I can, I can tell you that all the live long day, but until you internalize that, it, there, there's still stress. Uh, I love Morgan Housel's idea in the, his book, Psychology of Money, about market volatility being the fee we pay. You know, we, mm-hmm. we tend to think of volatility as a punishment. <laughs> but we're fine paying fees for other benefits. And he uses the example of going to Disneyland with your family. Like we don't look at the hundred dollars per ticket as a fine. <laughs> but what do you get out of that? A wonderful day, memories with your family. But and you're fine paying that that fee. But if you thought of it as a fine, you might push back on it. And so just transitioning your mindset around, especially the volatility, I mean I, I'm not even going to get into my lecture about investing. Like, why do you care what's happening in the market tomorrow? You're not taking your money out. <laughs> like, if anything, this is a this is good for you. You're buying in low dollar cost averaging. Remember, but it's just taking people back to the facts and then helping them going back to those money stories. And this also kind of plays into the perfectionism and all of this. It's like, why? What? What thing inside you is telling you you need to be stressed about this? Because there's probably a story that's being told that is false. And why do you have that story so that we can help you remind yourself that's not a true story anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that then brings back to, you know, there's so much here to unpack. I mean, the idea (laughs) of, you know, survival mode, right. I always think Mm -hmm. when survival mode, it's like, 
you know, let's separate our wants and our needs. Too often in this world, because of the consumption of da- of information and our access to information and social media for all the good that it has, it's provided a lot of challenges for us in this, is that we think we need so much, but we don't. And so when you're in survival mode, it's like, what is it that we need? What is it that we want? Let's put the wants on the, let's separate the two. We tend to blend them. But then, you know, I also think about like digging into the root of why you're stressed. It reminds me of the book called Reboot with talking about like digging into why you are that way. Like, why do you feel that way? Look back at your parents. It's not their fault. It's not their blame, but dig into it and you start to find those answers. And it's enlightening. It's freeing to my my whole emphasis of freedom. And, you know, you talk about the the fine versus fee, which is amazing, right? Like when you get a speeding ticket, that's a fine. When you go to <laughs> yeah. Disney World, that's a fee you pay for enjoyment. The investment volatility is a fee you pay for getting financial success in the future, yes. right? And I, I love that. You know, I, I think also, I guess, how do you help people see what is the root of their stress? Like how do, because everybody's like, well, no, it's like, there's always a, there's always rationalization. Mm-hmm. How, like, how do you help them dig into that deeper level? I think people are fearful of doing it because they don't know what, they, they want to find something that, well, that makes them it. upset, right? How, do, how does, <laughs> how do you get through that? I mean, that's where a therapy can help. And so I do employ some financial therapy tactics without illegally practicing therapy. But as a coach, I just get curious. Um, And I might ask some, what might come across as snarky questions (laughs) to like, you know, get people in the right mindset. But also, I, there has to be a level of trust between me and a client to even go there. Like, you know, I have a a couple really fun success stories. I had a, a client who was really struggling, and she legitimately like was just buried in debt, couldn't pay her bills, had no way to earn extra money because she was working all the time at her day job. And, and so we separated the wants and the needs, but a lot of people forget that like living in a certain place, an element of that cost is want. Mm. And I knew it was her rent was the problem was the only thing she could change. And I knew she wasn't ready to hear it. And so it was just kind of, let's play this game. And I don't want to be disrespectful because deep down she knew too. And it was just giving permission to like, it's okay for you to you know work this out. But eventually I got the call like, okay, I decided to break my lease and move to a cheaper place. And, you know, a year later was like, I've paid off my credit card debt. I'm about to pay off my car. I'm on my way to a trip to Europe, but it's creating the space for people to, to see the things about themselves they might not love so that they can heal it or learn to accept it. You know, I had another client who was just so, so afraid to do anything because she had previously purchased a home and then gone on a trip and came home from the trip and had spent all of her savings and lost her job. And this was years ago. And, you know, eventually she found another job and she never took on debt. Her credit score stayed great. She always paid her mortgage. Like those were really tough years, but she did great. And I said, well, like you just haven't forgiven yourself for some mistake that you didn't actually intentionally make. And like, she just sobbed. Mm. And just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Like, oh, you just sound like Oprah. That was like the best compliment I ever got. And yeah, it's an <laughs> Oprah thing. <laughs> and she used to work for Oprah. So it was, it's mostly just, I mean, there's an intuitive aspect of it for me. Uh, I, my mother was a guidance counselor and she taught me very, very well about communication. And I, you know, I read, I just, I'm a curious reader and 
And I'm not afraid to ask the tough questions, but I ask them in a way that it's okay for the answer to be something that you don't like, I guess. Mm. So yeah. I'm, I'm totally fine with somebody like, well, how'd you get into this debt? And some people will be like, oh God, don't ask me that. I'm like, well, <laughs> no, I'm not asking you, I'm not accusing you of anything. So let's tackle that first. Why is this a bad question to you? And then like giving them permission to just be like, oh yeah, like I, you know, got my Amex bill and knew I could pay it off and decided not to. And then the next month it was more and okay, well, how are we going to make sure that doesn't happen again? But taking the emotion out of it for, from that perspective can really help too. I love the two things you said, permission and trust, right? That's how you get through to it. You got to get help them, you have to build their trust and then give them permission that it's okay to be wrong, right? And, and that comes yeah. built on trust. I want to wrap up real quick here before we get into our two, two common questions at the end is um, financial planning for women. You created this program to help smart, informed women overcome their own analysis process. Give me what what spur. I mean, I think that's such an amazing program. I mean, so incredible, inspiring, such a need. Where did you see the need? Why did you want to focus here your time on this on on women and smart women and informed women? Give us some of the background of of what inspired you to kind of focus this program where you did. So a couple things. So, in my job as a financial wellness coach, a big part of the job was basically staffing the phone lines. And if the phone rang, you answered it and you handled whatever the caller was calling about. And there were a lot of calls from, you know, retirement planning calls. There were a lot of calls uh, about debt, you know, people in severe debt, but anything goes. People were calling with questions about how to exercise incentive stock options. And people were calling about, should I file bankruptcy and everything in between. So I really grew my financial planner chops, but my favorite clients <laughs> were the ones who called and said, I have no credit card debt. I'm getting ready to buy a house. I have $100,000 in the bank and I'm afraid. And mm. I don't know what to do. And that also, as a coach, most coaches, myself included, coach their five years ago selves. So it was easy for me to come up with the language I already have a circle and a network of, of people who fit the demographic. So from a business perspective, I went with the low-hanging fruit, the people I knew I could help, that I wanted to help, that I liked helping, who I understood because they, they to a certain extent, are like me. And I, you know, I, I expand into couples and I, I have a plan to create my, ne like my next iteration is going to be financial bliss for couples because I did have a significant amount of couples sign up for discovery calls about my program, but the program didn't fit because the, the educational aspect around how money works wasn't as important as it was to a lot of my single women or women who were doing this on their own without their spouse. And the couples just want a framework to get to know each other and get on the same page about money. And then the educational stuff is kind of like more something they would want to just get together with me one-on-one -on -one instead of going through my, my programs online combined with one-on-one. -on -one. So a lot of videos and presentations, but that's it. That's it's, it's who I, I wanted that. to work with. And I'll... that's the beauty of working for yourself. You get to pick who you work with. Right. And that was the thing I disliked about, you know, working on the coaching line was you never knew what you're going to get. And that made for some really tough days. Yeah. I mean, it's such a needed, you know, it's so it's, it's great, right? It gives, it gives, you know, having a niche is such an amazing thing, right? Focusing on one specific niche allows you to go to deep and serve them in a mo in a very powerful way, and I love that Your that you're doing are that. Your riches. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Kelly, I mean, we could go on for, for hours. I, I really loved having you here. And, you know, as we always do on Bridging the Gap, I got two final questions for you. <laughs> Actually, three. They're very easy. They're very simple. But first and foremost, we talked about it a little bit. You already gave an insight to one of them. I think you said you came with two, but a book, right? We talk about constant learners, you're lifelong learners. So what are some books that you think people should read to better themselves on some of these topics? Well, so I already mentioned mindset, which I think for anybody who feels like they have challenges with being defensive or get caught up in always just having to get things right or are overcoming that, that's a, just a great insightful book. The book that changed my life though, was The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Mm. Mm. Um, Why did it change your life? It's about a young man who goes in pursuit of his personal legend and he meets with several challenges. And at the beginning of the book, he he sells his she- he's a shepherd and he, he sells all of his sheep. And throughout the book, he keeps thinking, well, I can always go back and be a shepherd. So he has like a fallback job. And because he can always go back and be a shepherd, he continues on his pursuit of his personal legend. And that, to me, I bring that up all the time with my clients of like, remember the, you know, the shepherd, Santiago and the alchemist, like you could always go back and do this thing that you're good at. That's boring. That wasn't challenging. So take the risk. And that kind of has been, I I read it when I was 25 the first time and I've read it multiple times and it's, it's truly, it's, it's like in my psyche. I love that. I love that. Uh, Mindset and the alchemist. All right. The other question, and I got this from Barron's when I go to their conferences, what's one actionable takeaway that people can take from our conversation here today that they can go and put into their life and be better tomorrow? Oh, well, I mean, the thing that I, I really wanted to point out is just remembering that money is an exchange of energy, but we've discussed that ad nauseum. So I will also point out another piece of advice that was given to me early on in life that at the time was really relevant, but it's still relevant at mid-career, which was I was contemplating whether or not to take a safe job or take a risk. And one of my parents' friends said, who was a financial advisor, now is not the time to play it safe. And I'll I'll never, like that, that's all she said. (laughs) And she was right. And I did take the safe job because I was too afraid of taking financial risks, but I made some other other life choices that were not the safe choices. And surviving taking a risk where you know in your heart is something that could turn out amazing. And I guess this kind of plays into my alchemist thing, but like also could flop spectacularly is so freeing because when you do survive, especially if you flop, you know, failure is the better, the better teacher, you know that you can survive anything and it frees you from the shackles of what other people think and what you think and what your mom thinks. (laughs) And I think just realizing like, do I really need to keep playing this safe? Obviously you have responsibilities, particularly if you have, if you're a business owner, if you're a parent, those are responsibilities that you can't, you can't just shun, but take the risks because tomorrow is not promised. And the only way that you're going to change your life is by changing something that is outside of your comfort zone. Mm, That is powerful. That is powerful. I love that. Kelly, I know I want to continue to stay in touch and I want to continue to follow everything you're doing. And uh, I'm sure that there's many listeners out here that are listening to Bridging the Gap today that would want to do the same. So how can people stay in touch with you? How can they get in contact with you? How can they continue to follow you? Everything's financial bliss coach. So that Instagram is where I'm most active on social media. 
So follow me, Financial Bliss Coach. It's also my website, financialblisscoach.com. Or look me up on LinkedIn, Kelly C. Long. Love it. Kelly Long, Tucson, Arizona, Financial Bliss. It's the best. Find your financial bliss. Go find Kelly Long and stay in touch with her. Kelly, thank you so much for spending time with us here on Bridging the Gap. It was an amazing, amazing conversation. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. The Central